Hi, I'm Rick Schwartz. Buenos dias, world. I'm Marco Went. Welcome to Amazing Wildlife, where we explore unique stories of wildlife from around the world and uncover fascinating animal facts. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, an international nonprofit conservation organization which oversees the San Diego Zoo and Safari Park. All right, Rick. So we wrapped up our last episode telling everyone that you learned about something called conservation technology. And I see that we have an appointment at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance Beckman Center. That's the main building where a lot of our conservation scientists work. This episode was going to be about our Asian rainforest hub. So how does conservation technology fit in all of this? Well, Marco, all I can say is be prepared for a whole different side of conservation that often happens behind the scenes, or at least if not behind the scenes, it can often go unnoticed. And you're right. We started planning this episode around our Asian rainforest hub. This includes our projects and partners that are focused on needed work to maintain sustainable habitats for tigers and orangutans and one of my favorites, binturongs and sun bears and hundreds of other species that inhabit the region. Oh, man, that sounds really interesting. Now, I know a lot of our conservation scientists do amazing work like studying and preserving genetic materials in the frozen zoo, as an example, and definitely a whole lot more. But we're talking about conservation technology. So is this about radio collars and like trail cameras? Oh, yeah, yeah. Radio collars, trail cams, sometimes called camera traps. These are both pieces of conservation technology. But get this, I found out there is much more to it now than just camera traps and collars. With the rapid growth of technology from algorithms and artificial intelligence, these are all things we get at sort of at a consumer level. Conservation technology is also rapidly advancing along with these technologies. Oh, man, that's super fascinating. I mean, seriously, I can't wait to discuss what else is there and how it's all going to be used in our Asian Rainforest Hub to help with these conservation efforts. And that's the interesting twist to the story, Marco. Oh, yeah? Well, as I was digging around to find out more about our work in the Asian Rainforest Hub, I spent some time with our conservation technology team and found out that some of the latest technology has been deployed here in the Southwest Hub and more recently in the Amazonian Hub. The success of some of these technologies in the Amazonian rainforest now has our conservation team very excited to deploy it in the similar habitat of the Asian rainforest hub. Oh, wow. So when do we get to talk to someone from the conservation technology team? Well, I say we head over to the Beckman Center now and go have a conversation. Oh, man, that's a great idea. You know, I'm sure the guests know we're an 1,800-acre conservation park, and there's a portion that's inaccessible to guests, but it's a unique area called the Beckman Center where all of our conservation scientists and researchers do all this incredible work. So, yeah, I'm super pumped. Let's go, Rick. I am Ian Ingram. I am a conservation technology scientist here at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, and I lead the conservation technology lab. And what does conservation technology mean? For the average person, what would that mean? I mean, technology is a pretty broad term. Everything humans build is technology. We're really mostly focused on the use of computers, embedded computers, and devices like that. So digital electronics that's applied to the conservation problem. And actually, with this location, we're in a unique spot here at the Safari Park. What's the name of this building? What's so important about this location? We're in the Beckman Building, which houses at least the majority of the conservation science and wildlife health team. So there are numerous scientists and researchers of all sorts of stripes working here in conservation genetics, disease investigations, recovery ecology, population sustainability. I mean, there's actually four more, but maybe I won't list them all. <laughs> yeah. So there's, you know, a very broad swath of 
folks who are tackling our conservation goals with different tools. I'm curious too, because um, admittedly I was doing a little like stalking of you on the internet and I found some interesting facts about you that you have a background in you know, artist and in robotics, right? Can you share a little bit about some of your past history? Sure. I'm trained as a roboticist, specifically in underwater robots. My goal when I was a kid was to find the Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> and at the time, it seemed as if the best way to go about that was to use underwater robots. So I studied that and then I segued into looking for the giant squid. I was advised that maybe looking for an animal that may or may not exist might be a bad career move. <laughs> and I took that advice. And so I segued into the giant squid, which definitely existed, but uh, was still kind of mystical in a way. At the time, nobody had seen them alive, really. They had always been washed ashore or moribunds floating on the surface. And I mean, to summarize, the arc of my career has sort of been about initially looking for really large animals that may or may not exist to working with very small animals that definitely exist and working with animals that might not exist for much longer if we don't help them. Yeah, no kidding. Working at, we always just talk about, you know, especially when you're a child, like what sparks your interest in conservation. So I picture you, you know, in love, because someone actually hinted at me that you're in love with the Loch Ness Monster too. So it's interesting that that's where all it came from. And now you're knee deep in like really essential conservation projects with real life animals. Not to say that the Loch Ness Monster doesn't exist or does, you know, I'm not confirming or denying it, but now you're doing some really wicked work out there. Can you talk about the projects that you're involved in at the moment? We're doing a number of different things. A lot of them relate to the application of machine learning, you know, artificial intelligence, yeah. to processing data from sensor systems. So that can mean image data, basically photos that are coming back from camera traps and similar devices, to video data from similar sorts of camera devices, to audio data coming from audio recorders, and also movement data that comes from accelerometers, which are for people who aren't familiar with accelerometers, they're tiny little sensors that measure acceleration, which is to say movement, and you've got them in your phone, and your phone actually is using them to learn things about you too. And we're <laughs> <laughs> applying some of that same technology to elephants and similar species. So the machine learning aspect makes processing what are essentially massive data sets at this point much more efficient in collaboration with humans still who check that the ML isn't totally misleading us. Well, Ian, I have a couple of questions about that. To start off with, why do we need, as you say, ML or machine learning to help with this? For instance, you mentioned camera traps or cameras that are set out in the wild by humans to take pictures when wildlife walks by. So I guess my question is, how does that work? How does the camera know what to take a picture of? And then I guess, additionally, why do we need a computer to go through that set of pictures or data? Why can't we just look at it and say, okay, there's a leopard or, or there's a monkey and so on? You absolutely can do that. And that's how it was done. And it still is done to a large extent. People look at the photos and identify what they are on Zooniverse, for instance, which is a partner that we work with. The fact is that the bulk of images coming in is so large that that's actually prohibitive at this point. And a lot of times something goes wrong and the camera trap captures something that isn't even real data, like just grass blowing in the wind. And I'll get back to that in a moment since you asked how they work. So the ML can, by ML, I mean machine learning algorithm, can very quickly look at those images and throw out the ones that don't have animals in them at all, meaning that the citizen scientists who contribute on Zooniverse have that many fewer false positives, as we call them, to look at, images that don't contain any animals. And it can also identify which animals are in there, and that speeds things up greatly. So as an example, a data set that was comparable, one that took us 
six months to have citizen scientists label doing it the old way. It only took us three weeks. And that's when the ML goes through first and says what everything is. And then a person goes back and looks at it on Zooniverse and says, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. And then that's not right. And then it gets thrown back through the soup. The camera traps are triggered by a passive infrared sensor. So this is a sensor that's looking for the movement of an animal in front, but also a warm animal, an animal that's warmer than the background, which actually gets into a, a totally other thing that we're interested in doing because a lot of animals aren't warm-blooded and they don't trigger the camera traps particularly well. So ectotherms, like reptiles of various sorts and amphibians. And so if you're using a camera trap in that context, there's some hacks you can use to try to create that signal that the PIR will trigger on, the passive infrared sensor. But what you can definitely do is apply another kind of machine learning sort of paradigm, which is called Edge AI, which is the use of AI right on the device itself. So we have another project called ScrubCam, where instead of being an off-the-shelf camera trap that triggers with the PIR, the ScrubCam is using an Edge AI machine learning model, constantly looking at what it's seen and identifying it with the AI, and then triggering only when it sees what it needs to, or actually really just recording what it sees when it needs to. Whoa, a camera trap that knows when it should or should not record? Wow, that's pretty wild. I mean, it sounds like a lot of tech and computer science to me, but this might be a good time to ask. I mean, why are these images so important? Why can't a researcher just go out in the wild and look for footprints from the animals or maybe even look into their droppings? Why is having this AI or artificial intelligence out there so essential? Well, there's two answers to that question. One is that you can't take action if you don't know what the problem is and you don't know the extent of the problem. So we can't just have sort of anecdotal ideas of whether a given animal is reducing in population size or actually improving. We have to do population studies. And that's a big part of what we're applying those kinds of techniques to, the camera traps and things like that. The other part of your question is, well, there's two factors to that. You were talking about a person going out and looking for tracks or or spore. And A, that's a lot of labor. That's a lot of people that have to be there to equate the efficacy of a large array of camera traps. There's a, actually a lot of different facets to this because there's also the fact that people themselves disturb the habitat when they go in there. And a lot of what we're trying to do is to gain this data in the least invasive possible way. And just the as one of my colleagues called it, the ball of smells that a human being represents is a problem. I mean, you leave a little bit of that on the camera trap when you deploy it, which actually gets into another thing, which is stuff we're experimenting with where we would use robots to deploy the sensors too, so humans wouldn't even have to enter the habitat being studied. And then there is the fact that animals don't show up when people are around, and animals don't always go to the places where people are. And then there's the fact that, that people don't detect a lot of things. So we have the potential to use sensors that can detect things that people can't detect. When it comes to the acoustic side of things, when we have an acoustic recorder out there, that often means recording into the ultrasound. So what defines ultrasound is sound that humans can't hear. It's higher frequency, higher pitch than humans can hear. And a lot of animals are vocalizing in that range. So bats and rodents, for instance, are vocalizing in that range. And on the other side of the frequency spectrum is the infrasound, the sound that's too low for humans to hear. And elephants are using that too. So some of our sensor systems are recording in those places and humans wouldn't even know there was something happening there to begin with. 
That's really interesting for me because, you know, in our nocturnal episode, I reference, you know, the realities behind the realities of the realities. And you're mentioning, you know, different acoustics and sounds and say jungle as an example. And in the past, I've worked with cassowaries, you know, very unique vocalizations that humans can't pick up. So it gets me really excited thinking that we have technology now that can immerse themselves in a habitat where wildlife isn't necessarily going to react to say, maybe a human giving a cough in the middle of the jungle or, or sloughing off some skin cells that a mammal might pick up that now we might be able to like be there, observe behavior without physically being there, but see some really unique stuff that we probably never would have really seen. Or you had mentioned technology can pick up sounds or maybe even some visuals that we just can't pick up and we'll know even more about a certain species, which kind of makes me think about those really unique environments that are really hard to get to. I mean, everything from like the Arctic with a polar bear, right? Uh, frigid temperatures or my favorite friend is like rainforest, you know, but even then like that presents challenges in its own right. I mean, can you talk a little bit about maybe some projects we're trying to focus on in our Amazonia rainforest habitat with really unique species in like thick, thick jungle? It's kind of almost near impossible to get to and access data, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the maybe more prosaic aspects of making any of these things is powering the devices. So they have to have enough power to run. So they either have to be low power and run on just batteries like you would have in you know, a consumer device, or they might use solar power. But in the Amazonian rainforest, it is not easy to use solar power. No. Because <laughs> the trees are you know, working against you. So you can put a panel, a solar panel up higher and then run the power down, which isn't really that easy to do, but that's a major concern when working in that kind of habitat. To the question of what we're doing there, we do a lot of different things across the organization in the Amazon, mostly the Peruvian Amazon. A lot of the projects the Conservation Technology Lab is involved in are connected to camera trap arrays that are deployed that are paralleled by audio moth acoustic recorder arrays. So we're getting images and video and sound of different animals that are there. It's probably worth bringing up that there's this whole idea that that which you see in a camera trap is different than that which you'll hear, because a lot of cryptic species will never show up in a camera trap, either because they're not on the forest floor, they're not big enough, but they often will be making noises that you'll pick up with the audio recorders. And so that's why having those two different paradigms of sensing are so important. And I like that you brought that up. I think that's important to remember, too, that for as many camera traps are deployed and thousands and thousands of images that come in from them, that it is a very narrow window. You have to have the camera trap pointed in the right direction or at the right level for a particular species and hope that they walk on the right side of the tree where your camera is and not the left side of the tree where your camera is not pointing. Yeah. So that's a really good point that it's a very limited window in which you're getting. Obviously, we can use our best guess by understanding trails and how the environment is used by the species. But that does then bring us right back to what you said about the acoustics, needing that audible side of things, which is picked up differently, travels differently through the forest, et cetera. And we were talking a little bit beforehand too about all this work that is being done in the Amazon forest and how what we have learned and what's developed over time is now going to be something we can apply to the Asian rainforest as well, because the challenges there aren't dissimilar. What would you say has been in your time doing this work the most interesting thing you have learned from something going right or wrong out in the field? I mean, I guess the first thing I'd say, and this is just something that I know after many decades of working as an engineer, is that things go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to know that they're going to go wrong, and you have to test. It's pretty much the cornerstone of making something work, that you just test it a lot. We, in the Conservation Technology Lab, have this internal mnemonic that we use, Bora Bora, which stands for bench, 
is the BO is the outdoor learning lab, which is just this teaching lab that's right outside this building, the Beckman building. And R is the reserve for the biodiversity reserve, which is this uh, 800 acres of land that's immediately adjacent to the safari park. So just a little further afield. And then A is a field, like our remote locations in Svalbard or in the Asian rainforest or in other places. And so we work as hard as we can to make something work on the bench, which is the first part. And then we take it to the outdoor learning lab, which is just outside the door, and immediately realize that we forgot something. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's called the learning lab, yeah, right? Yeah, right? Yeah, For us, it's the learning what we forgot and what we were dumb about lab. And then once we get that, we take it to Sagebrush, which is our sensor network in the Biodiversity Reserve. It's, the brush stands for Biodiversity Reserve Ubiquitous Sensing and Habitat. And then we prove it out there, and we do that with projects that we're doing there with cougars and rattlesnakes that are very interesting species that are local to our southwest area. And then if it passes that test, then it goes further afield. And the reason it's Bora Bora instead of just Bora is that engineering, like many things, is iterative, and you end up going back to the drawing board like Wiley Coyote and, uh, <laughs> and having to, to start the whole process over again. So, you know, there are stories of things going awry. I, the reason I'm pausing so much is I don't want to, like, accidentally uh, point a finger at somebody. <laughs> oh, well, no, I'm not, yeah, you don't have to. Out, I guess I guess what I was getting at is that I know just from, you know, working outdoors, working with the wild and, and working in conservation that sometimes your best lesson comes from something you didn't even realize or something you had to learn or it's the most unexpected thing that was like, oh, duh, you know, and try and outthink the situation all you want. But it seems that the animals will always teach us something or the outdoors in general will teach us something, yeah. so... I mean, this isn't uh, an example of the worst thing that ever happened, but we often find that wood rats like to nibble on the cables of the things uh, that we've got out in the biodiversity reserve. So, And it's a simple solution. You just don't run the cable past where they live. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the area they care about, and that's where they start exploring with their teeth, which is what rodents do. So I've been out on the reserve, saw a lot of the different locations where the camera traps are. So for here, just locally, in our southwest environment, we have this stuff deployed to look at. What's been some of the most surprising, most interesting things you have seen come up in all this data? Or were there no surprises? You're like, no, nope, everything's out there we expected. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it kind of speaks to your earlier question about trying to do surveys with just people out in the woods versus doing it with the equipment. I've never seen a bobcat in the wild. Ever, I think. Someone pointed one out once and I couldn't tell that it was a bobcat. <laughs> but we actually see them on the camera trap images all the time. So with these regular camera traps, we're able to kind of see this aspect of what's going on in there that otherwise you wouldn't see at all. Uh, we see a lot of other kinds of things. I mean, it's always interesting to see who's eating whom. Um, <laughs> we get a lot of camera trap images of cougars with, say, a, a skunk in their mouth, you know. And yeah, maybe that's not so crazy, but you know, then you know that they're actually catching skunks and enjoying them. I remember seeing one of those field cams out in the reserve, and I saw one of a skunk walking out with look like a gopher in its mouth. And I forget, like they're omnivores, but you know, like to your point, you don't really see that with your eye, you know, yeah. until you notice these field cams. And I just think even being a wildlife care specialist and having these field cams as a tool for us to use is a good angle to try to capture certain behaviors. Like for instance, the Western Brewing House at Condor Ridge, there were certain aspects of their behavior between the pair that I had never witnessed. Even I was trying to be the sneakiest specialist that I could be hiding behind a pine tree. They knew I was there, you know, and they still modified their behavior. The second I left, they knew it. And uh, they just showed me some really interesting stuff utilizing those field cams. So there's a lot of good potential in tech, I think, with that. Yeah, something that I often think about is how animals are alive all the time. Sounds like a simple thing, but 
as a bird watcher and animal watcher for most of my life, you get to a point where you're realizing that you're only seeing them at certain times. Yeah. But they're doing everything else the rest of the time. If there's a storm, they're finding some place that they're a bird to roost and right. they're wet and so on. And then they're huddling in their, their nests if they're a squirrel or whatnot. But we're diurnal beings. And even when we occasionally stay up to be nocturnal, we're not doing it all the time. And so there's yeah. a lack of overlap between when we're active and when we're not and when the animals are active and when they're not. And the the devices, the camera traps and other sensors can be active all the time. So they can catch all those little secrets. Yeah, you're not <laughs> kidding, right? And all the nuances of what we'll know with a certain species, like we were to the polar bear and again, back to the, the Asiatic hub where we're doing work with the Asiatic black bear as an example. And still, you know, in a thick, vibrant rainforest habitat, it's really hard to track a bear. And even if you could, it's going to modify its behavior in some regard too. And me, we were talking about this before we started recording, buddy, how I'm definitely not a tech guy, but I can't appreciate technology and, and the advances that it's helping us out in these conservation efforts and tied to that, helping out communities that are trying to live next to this wildlife too, which I think it's just one of the most important things. Ian, I want to take a moment and ask about the rapid developments in technology. For example, and I'm probably dating myself, but back when I started working professionally with wildlife care and conservation, a trail camera was just a box with a 35 millimeter camera in it with film and everything. And then that got updated eventually as technology moved forward to digital. And then it was HD as technology advanced even further. But you still had to go out there and retrieve the data cards and so on. You know, and with cell technology now, we're, we're seeing many devices that just upload data right to the cloud directly via a cell signal. So no need to go back out there and have the humans disturb the environment. It's amazing. And we hear in the future, and probably not too distant future, where robots are going to be helping us with conservation as well. What are some of the things robots will be used for in conservation? There's a broad spectrum of things we think we can use them for. A lot of those would require that sort of turnaround moment where the longevity of the robots is greater. The short-term application that we're planning to use, and I wouldn't say proprietary because the philosophy of, of our organization and also the Conservation Technology Lab is that we share these kinds of results pretty openly, is to use the quadrupedal robots in VHF tracking. So we have a collaboration with the engineers for exploration at UCSD, the University of California, San Diego, and they had developed a device to do VHF tracking. So this is where an animal has a beacon attached to it. Like a radio collar. Like a radio collar. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different kinds of collars. Certainly. Um, but certainly. there's some that use these VHF tags as a, a way of tracking them. And historically, you'd go out there with a large antenna and you'd zero in on where they are by wandering around and seeing where the signal strength was stronger. Our collaborators at UCSD, they built a system that could be born on a drone and fly around and zero in on that. That was a project with Glenn Gerber, connected a lot to his work with iguanas in the Caribbean and elsewhere. And we're now going to use it with rattlesnakes in the biodiversity reserve. And we're going to do that not just with aerial drones, but also with the legged robots. So that's a plan to begin to understand whether we can use the legged robots to do that sort of thing. And there's always going to be a balance where certain applications would be better served by using the drones versus the legged robots. But there are plenty of spaces where the drones aren't going to do the thing we need. And so this is an exciting new thing where you can have these essentially little robot dogs wandering around trying to track down the snakes and being able to do that kind of exhaustively in the space, wandering the fire roads and sitting down when they need to rest and charge up and then going back on to duty to figure out where the snakes are so that we can get a really good map of the snake's activity in the space. Wow, that's amazing. And you had mentioned earlier that the deploying sometimes of audio tracking equipment or the cameras 
just the human going into the space and doing that can be disruptive enough that perhaps it changes or alters the behavior, at least for a few days, if not longer, of the species in the environment. Therefore, the data you're collecting isn't actually accurate. Would these robots potentially be an opportunity to deploy these type of devices into the environment without a human going in and disturbing that space? Yeah, absolutely. One of the more blue sky ideas for using these robots is to deploy one of our other systems, the DENCAM system that goes to Svalbard to monitor maternal polar bears. And as it stands, in collaboration with Polar Bears International, we work very closely with them on the DENCAM project. They fly out in a helicopter and then they land somewhere near where the bear is. They know where it is because of a GPS fix. And then they ski the last few kilometers in and then they have to, you know, make sure they don't get too close. <laughs> for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for obvious reasons. For the bear's safety and for their safety and so on and so forth. But we imagine that something like that, and this might be more like five, six years out, instead of humans having to deploy that robotic terrestrial robot, well, this quadrupedal terrestrial robot, likely quadrupedal, there's other versions, there's six-legged ones and things like that, would just slowly wander across the landscape bearing that device and then over the course of probably weeks, get to the location, sit down, and, and monitor the polar bears. So there's a science fiction aspect to that whole idea, and part of what we have to do is sort of tease it apart and see whether there's some real potential there, and it's really actually going to be as helpful as we hope it will be, or whether there's some massive gotcha that makes it kind of nonsense. But by having that blue sky idea, we can explore it, and we can find all these other places where there's a utility for this technology that's just about to become very prevalent and ubiquitous. Oh, you know, and I really think it's worth noting some of the concepts of the work that we do here with wildlife here at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park or the San Diego Zoo. We learn new aspects of wildlife behavior and health because of the work that we do. I mean, we're literally side by side with amazing wildlife and we share this information with our partners in those conservation hubs. But Honestly, I've never really thought about the tech side of things and how we're applying all these technological advances. I mean, like robots, are you kidding? And then being able to share this information around the world too, it's just epic. And that leads me to wanted to ask you, dude, what does this mean to you to be part of this conservation technology? To be at this level of conservation, this level of making sure that this world stays in some form of ecological balance. What it means for me, well, I mean, I feel good about the work we're doing, and that's important to me. I think that's important to the people who work here in general. And as you mentioned, that's a lot of different kinds of people who are tackling this problem in a lot of different kinds of ways. And yeah, we, the Conservation Technology Lab, facilitate that work by providing data that the ecologists and other sorts of scientists can do the sorts of studies that they've done, but often faster or with more data than they otherwise could have done it. It is truly amazing work, and I really appreciate you spending time with us today and sharing everything you know with our listening audience. All this work you do, all the work your team does, it's truly amazing. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree, Rick. I mean, I think I learned a lot today. I really appreciate it, Ian. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking with you all. Oh, Rick, you know, I can't believe I'm going to say this because, like I've said before, I'm definitely not a tech person <laughs> at all. But after listening to Ian, I am super stoked about everything tech can do for conservation. I know exactly what you mean, Marco. I just love hearing Ian's passion and excitement for his work, knowing that he and his team are doing a lot for conservation now 
And then knowing there's so much more new technology on the horizon. Oh, yeah. And it really reminds me of what, you know, we've been saying before. San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, it's like a city with every kind of job and career working for wildlife conservation. From being a mechanic to being a chef or a writer, wildlife care, even social media. Yeah, it's true. And that brings me to yet another point I want to make. Something I was reminded of as Ian was sharing his work with us. Now, I've had plenty of people ask me throughout my career how they can be a part of wildlife care or conservation if they aren't a biologist or they've already gone through school and they have a profession doing something else. And I think all of this talk about conservation technology really shows us that you can be a computer programmer or an engineer or a roboticist or, like you said, social media specialist or a chef or whatever and still be directly involved with saving wildlife. Oh, I mean, that's absolutely true, man. I 100% agree. And I hope everyone listening understands that you can make a difference for wildlife no matter what you do. Oh, so true. And you know, Marco, I realized this episode was supposed to have a main focus on our Asian rainforest hub, but I'm really glad in researching our work there that we found out about Ian and what the conservation technology team is doing and how all of that is going to benefit really all of our hubs. Oh, I mean, I absolutely agree. I mean, the work is expanding of the Amazon, the Pacific Islands here in the Southwest, and of course, the Asian rainforest hub. So, you know, what do you think about taking some time to maybe focus a little bit more on some of that wildlife in that Asian rainforest hub? Well, that sounds good to me. What are you thinking about? Well, you know, International Tire Day is coming up this month. Oh, well, you heard him, folks. Be sure to subscribe and tune into our next episode in which Marco and I talk about everything whiskers and stripes for International Tiger Day. Al próximo, I'm Marco Wendt. And I'm Rick Schwartz. Thanks for listening. For more information about the San Diego Zoo and San Diego Zoo Safari Park, go to sdzwa.org. Amazing Wildlife is a production of iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios. Our supervising producer is Nakia Swinton, and our sound designer and editor is Sierra Spreen. For more shows from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.